Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. If you're looking to build a business making and selling mobile apps, Carter Thomas has answers for you. His team at Blue Cloud Solutions has provided the source code for over 1,500 apps and sells templates and training to help people with no coding background go from idea to product to market. In this episode, Carter discusses how working with mentors and masterminds groups helps him build his own business while helping others do the same. He'll share his sustainable approach to hiring, training, and managing a remote team, and tell us why it's important to audit your project backlog regularly and let go of the things that aren't keeping you motivated. So today I'm talking with Carter Thomas, and he's the CEO of Blue Cloud Solutions. Carter, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, David. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic, and I'm, I'm excited to talk with you. Can you tell us a little bit about Blue Cloud Solutions? I'm not sure if everybody's heard of it. Yeah, it started as a little hobby of mine back in, I guess, 2011 or so, where I would blog all about the app business. I got into the app business in late 2011, and I just started sharing a lot of ideas, a lot of case studies. There was no real business logic behind it, just I wanted to share all this information. Fast forward to 2016, 2017, and it has turned into a, a large community of app entrepreneurs, app developers, a place to get get information, connect with other people, learn about the app business, and it, it's grown into, into something really cool. I'm really proud of it. <laughs> so how did that start out in 2011? Were you building apps yourself? You know, I, was, I started out building websites for lawyers, and the brief backstory to that is I was working at a startup in 2008, 2009, 2010, right in the middle of the recession, which was just, you know, dot-com, pet supplies, 2008. I mean, you couldn't script it as a better MBA and what not to do. And I ended up leaving in 2010, and I was living in a small town in Maine. The only thing that I could, I could make work was selling websites. That was the only thing that people had any money to spend in that town at that time. And I found that the only people that had any money were lawyers. So I started selling websites to lawyers, providing marketing materials and services. And that slowly evolved into me realizing I didn't really want to be in the service business as much as I wanted to be in the product business, digital asset, digital product business. So I slowly started to get into apps and Blue Cloud Solutions slowly morphed out of a portfolio of lawyer websites into an app blog. So you were doing working for yourself then, essentially, not going out and being an employee of another company at that time. Yeah, I started off myself and honestly, it was I didn't know what I didn't know. And I think that that, that was helpful in the sense that I just didn't stop. I, I worked relentlessly and I made a million mistakes that I didn't need to make, but I did. And it, I didn't do it the right way, but I did it. Because it was, it was a small town in Maine and there was, there was nobody to talk to. I was going on the, on the internet and hearing about guys out in California who were like, oh, you should do email marketing and oh, there's this info products. And I was just, I didn't believe it. You know, I was just in, like, how could I in the small town? I didn't know anybody, I didn't meet these guys. Later on, I, I met all these people you know, in later years and I realized it was, it was or for the most part, it was legit. But in Maine, I just didn't know. 
And I think looking back, there was a lot of good that came out of that. I think that there's a lot that I could have learned if I had just said, hey, why don't I team up with somebody for a year and see what the heck is going on? But it just worked out that way. I, I had so much fire. I had so much energy. I wanted to make something happen that to me, the idea of working for somebody would just get in my way. I didn't have the foresight to think, oh, maybe they could teach me something I don't know already. I was too you know, cavalier as a young guy to say, oh yeah, I know I can figure it all out. I can do it myself. So yeah, I did my own thing and I presented the company as a, you know, kind of a branding move. I presented Blue Cloud as a, as a firm, as a big marketing service company. I didn't lie by any means, but I didn't make up people. But, you know, I use language like, you know, we, we will deliver you multiple marketing assets and we have services offering. And so it looked like we had a big team and I had people that I could outsource things to. But yeah, I mean, it was just some nerd in, a, in his little apartment, like scraping together <laughs> stock photography to try to get try to try to pay his rent like that's really all it was at the time did you follow anybody's blueprint in terms of how to start that or were you really just winging it completely that's a good question i don't want to say i was winging it because i'm sure there was plenty of people that i was pulling inspiration from a lot of times i would just see what the competitors were doing and i would just i would just copy them often i would pretend i was a lawyer and i would call them saying oh i need some seo services and i would see how they would pitch me and i would i would listen to the language i would see their materials I would never copy anything, but I would always say, oh, this is how the sales process works. This is what an email responder looks like. I, I didn't even think about doing something like that. So there was a lot of that. The four-hour work week was a huge impact of having a paradigm shift of saying, there's a lot of other potential ways I could be thinking about this of automation and systems and all that. You know, and I would ask around. What I did was I just met with a lot of people who I was genuinely asking them for advice and they would just tell me problems that they needed solutions to and I would give them free information and free ideas and they would say, can I just hire you to do this? And I, I slowly realized that the power of networking and as long as I just met a lot of people and asked them what, like what, how I could help them and offering a lot of value up front, People would just say, here's my problem. Can you solve it? And I could go back and I wouldn't have to pitch them. I would just need to solve the problem. And that was that ended up being what the business turned into as opposed to a, a price sheet where I would hand it to them and say, all right, take your pick. That's interesting. I wonder if not coming from like a, a major business center, but coming from a smaller town might have been to your advantage in a situation like that. I think so. I think that in that respect, there's a lot of value in people not telling you all right, here what the, here's what the rules are. You know, here's how business has to work. There's something definitely very incredibly liberating when someone, when you just have no idea what the rules are or how much you should charge or how much you shouldn't charge. And I think a lot of people seek out that structure for good reason. I think that having that structure provides a lot of guidance and a lot of, or I should say, you don't waste a lot of time because you have a, a blueprint. But I think it often prevents people from blazing their own path and, and hitting something that is special because it is unique, because it's creative in, in that way. And I, there's always a balance between those two. But I remember I always tell people the, the, the moment I knew I needed to leave Maine as I was down at the bar and I was just having a beer or something and, and talking to someone next to me. And she said, oh, what do you do? And I responded, well, I'm in the app business. And she said, oh, that's so great. I'm in catering too. And I was just like, oh my gosh, like I need to get out of this town. And that was the, that was it. That's what I knew I needed to go. That is a conversation you'll never hear in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
at what point in your in your career did you actually move to San Francisco? What was your business like and how did you manage to move yourself? I moved here in September of 2012 and I the the lawyer business was was doing very well. It was ramping up. I was starting to get some national clients. The app business was doing okay. I just I started to crystallize what is, you know, the, the system of making apps or what used to be called reskinning, which is where you have one core template and you create multiple apps from that template. I, I saw that early because that's what I was doing with, with the lawyers, with websites. That was starting to do well enough that I had a little bit of breathing room. It was starting to make about two or $3,000 a month, which to me was, I mean, I was rolling in it, you know, in Maine, I mean, you're paying $700 a month in rent, like you are crushing it with $3,000 a month in, in residuals. And it really just came down to waking up and obviously having conversations like that. But also, I remember distinctly thinking to myself, nobody here is living a life that I really want to live. I, I don't see people around me that are where I want to be. There's no way that I could picture myself living the life I want to live if I can't see other people living that. That's very true for my own personality, but I think it's true for, for most people. I think you have, to, you have to see it a lot of times to believe it. So I knew I just, I needed to go, go somewhere and, you know, something would happen. Something would change. And I, change had always become like a, a, a very good catalyst for me. So I literally sold everything I owned, got in a car and, you know, camped out across the country for two and a half weeks and got out to San Francisco, middle, end of September of 2012 and didn't have any idea what I was doing. The apps were doing pretty well, you know, starting to figure some things out. And two months later, I had my first big win where I released an app on a whim for a viral video of Gagnum Style, which ended up going huge, like very, very quickly, where I was making, you know, 10, 15, $20,000 a day when previously I, that was unheard of for me to imagine that kind of, that kind of growth that quickly. So a lot of things all happened at the same time. The end of 2012 was kind of this apex of, of energy that I, I guess I could say was a long time coming, but there was definitely some luck involved too. Well, it's interesting because it's the sort of thing you can't plan for, but it sounds to me like if, if you're consistent about releasing things on a regular basis, you're putting yourself in a position where it's possible for something like that to happen. I think that's very true. I think that it's easy to look back and say, oh man, there's this one app that just really, really did it. But then I think about, well, that one app happened because I had a team set up that I had already done 94 apps with that I could easily send them an image with a description and say, here's what I want the app to look like. And they can turn it around in 48 hours and we could nail the trend as I saw it. And if I hadn't had that system or that team and all that experience before this, I probably never would have been able to capitalize on that opportunity. So yeah, you know, it, it's it's one of those things where the timing of it all is you just got to keep throwing the throwing the dice, I guess. Well, that's something I'd like to dig into a little bit because we're talking about three thousand dollars a month in residuals, but you're talking also about having a team and ninety four apps that are out and moving across the country and all of these things happening at the same time. What was the structure of the business like at that time? How did you put together your team and how were you coordinating all that? So between two thousand eleven and I would say summer of two thousand twelve, so the first nine months of my business. It was virtually all me. And I am not a coder. I don't know how to code, but I am very persistent. And so I will, it was kind of like a guess and check situation where I would get, I would look at the code. I would search and search and replace the, the images based on where I saw it in the code. I would save it in Photoshop. 
I would update ad networks and I would just have no idea what I was doing, but I would just test it until it built correctly and I would upload it. So I was working all the time trying to get these apps in the store and almost all of them completely bombed. But what happened is after a while, I started to say, okay, I've got this. I know what I'm doing now. I should be spending my time on the publishing, right? Getting the keywords, getting the titles, making sure I'm capitalizing on the right trends, picking the right themes. And I found a team that would do one piece of that, right? I could send them either the graphics or I could send them the compiled app and say, can you upload this for me? It was just one piece of the, of the assembly line. As I started to grow, I, I would expand their role and I would say, all right, now I want you to do the, the graphics and the upload. And I want you to do the keychain permissions and I want you to do push notifications. As the, the revenue grew, I just expanded their role because they, luckily they had a team that I could, I could grow accordingly. So it started off by, I hired them for one piece of the business and then I just expanded their role within the business versus I think other people often will have multiple people doing multiple parts of the business, uh, which I've also done. It's just when I first started off, I really liked working with one person who he project managed the team. And so all I had to do was just work with him and create the procedures and, and the deliverables. This person and this team, this is somebody that you found independently? Did you go through an agency? Yeah, I went through what was then Elance, which is now Upwork. And I found this guy in China, which back in 2011, 2012, China didn't have the reputation in the app store that it does now. And for anybody who doesn't know much about the app store, there's a lot of mistrust with Chinese developers. There's just a lot of you know mixed, mixed experiences for whatever reasons. And I had a great experience. This was the first guy that really knew what he was doing. He was very communicative. He was a little bit more expensive, but I got what I paid for. And I had an amazing experience. He delivered on everything. The quality was great. And I had dealt with countless other developers, both domestic and abroad, that just didn't have that consistent delivery and work ethic that I was looking for. And these guys did. They were, they were awesome. We had a great, great run. How did you go through the process of vetting and evaluating those developers? And you know, clearly you had some negative experiences along the way. Yeah, I think any entrepreneur, especially an online entrepreneur, it's not even terrifying. It's just painful to go through a hiring process when you're early on because you just want to you just want to find that person and you really want to believe that the person you found is great, right? You, you don't want to you're looking to say yes before you say no and obviously that changes as you get further into business, but when I first started hiring people, I did that. I just I was looking for reasons to say yes instead of for reasons to say no. And so I hired a lot of people and I wasted a lot of money without qualifying them on on some basic stuff. On hey, how often are you going to communicate to me? Here are the criteria. Here's here's a three strike rule that is is more of an objective measuring system. And so what I started doing is creating these mini tasks where let's say the job for a, a new app was three hundred dollars. I would first say, I will pay you $15 to install this ad network just to see how this works you know, between us. And I would hire five or six people to do that one job for 15 bucks. Just by doing that, I could see how they communicated with me. I could see how they delivered it, if there was any problems. And I could immediately drop 80% of the people that, that I was potentially gonna hire because I, as soon as I hired them and money exchanged hands, it was a completely different story. You know, some guys I never heard from again. Some of them were amazing up front. Then they trailed off later. 
And so I found that if I just incrementally hire them, you know, start with a small job and then you slowly get bigger and bigger, that is, and I still do that today. I think that's still the best way you want to do it with outsourced talent, assuming you have, it's a more than a one-time thing, which it usually should be if you're hiring, hiring someone who's really good. I found that that style, I still find that style works extremely well to finding and keeping really good talent. And you work exclusively with distributed teams then, I guess, people who are all around the world. Yeah, for, for the app business we do, for some of the some of my other companies, so Blue Cloud and some other properties I have, there's some people that are domestic, pretty much full-time, but you know, like part-time, full-time, it kind of switches. And then we have a lot of outsourced talent that comes and goes for different projects, designers, developers, marketers, things like that. And so we'll, I'm always on the hunt though. I'll go on Upwork once a week and just browse through job listings. I will post job listings for random stuff, even if I'm not going to hire anybody, just to, once you can find somebody, a great contractor or someone who's great to work with, who has a very specific skill set, I will find something for them to do because it's difficult to find someone who's really good. And so I'm always, I'm always looking and it's also sharpening my own skills. I would love to bring more people in on a full-time basis and be able to say, Hey, you, you do your thing and light it up. Here's what we need you to do. And so that's just an ongoing process. So where do you spend most of your time these days then? These days, I would say like 2016, it was, I would say there's a, there's a fair amount of blue cloud, maybe 60 or 70% of my time was blue cloud, give or take. I have a couple other side projects that were revenue generating sites, but more than anything, it was just a, it was a test to see if I could build properties that didn't involve me because Blue Cloud is is an amazing business. I love it. I love the community we have, but it's my face is all over it, right? The the, the hit by a bus test is probably not going to work with that business. And I wanted to make sure that I had other companies that I was not nearly as involved in. Like obviously I helped set it up and manage it and all that. So I have some other things on that side. And then one of my own personal interests this year is just learning a lot more about, I guess money is, is the way to say it. Things like investing, tax strategies, understanding balance sheets, profit and loss statements, how to evaluate companies, venture capital. It's something that I just had never really dug into. And so I spent a, a fair amount of time this year, I still spend a fair amount of time just learning about that, just understanding how the, re- the big macro picture looks of business, finance, and, and just how do you grow? How does money grow? Because everyone I always talk to says like, now if you really want to make money, get into the money business. And when, when you listen to all these guys, it, it's kind of where they all end up going. So that's always been an interest too. It's true. Everybody ends up on the public speaking circuit and everybody ends up in the money business. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so one of the things, sort of the meta message that I hear behind what you're talking about is this distinction that you mentioned earlier between being a service company and being a product company, I think. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of pros and cons. And I think the first, the first piece of service versus product is personality. I think I know some people that do service businesses and they are unbelievable at it and they love it. They feel completely fulfilled and it shows on their on their yearly quor- or quarterly statements. I mean, they, they're having a great time doing it. And then I, th- I think on the product side, there's a whole new set of challenges, but there's also a whole new set of potential upside, I guess. The scale potential on the product side is very attractive because you can leverage things so, so well if you have a big digital product and you know the whole idea of the laptop lifestyle immediately becomes a, a very tangible reality. For me, I've always liked the product side more because it gives me more flexibility to try new things. 
when it comes to the service business, you're looking at typically a three to five year runway to really build a business. And a lot of that's about managing teams. A lot of that's about establishing processes within those teams. And it's just making sure it all works. And there's a clear formula for having a good service business. And I think with the products, there's a little bit of that unknown sauce. You don't quite know if or how it's going to happen, even if you, you really know, like you follow the rules of business, you have a, you have a much better chance. But what's, what I really like about products is that you still can get those big wins while, while creating that floor, the safety net that you need, but you can still have that, those big pops and, and over deliver on in a lot of ways to people that don't even know you, people that just find your, your product or, your, or whatever you're selling and they're like, man, this, this was great. I don't even know who this person is and I really love this product. So I like that. I think that, like I said, though, I think it comes down to, to personality and I think it comes down to what the end goal is financially, but also just how you want to spend your time. Well, it, it seems, you know, looking at, at the sorts of things that you've been putting together and that you've been putting out, one of the things that seems to motivate you is wanting to share with people, wanting to give people information and educate them. Is that something that feeds into the product businesses that you're working on? Yeah, it does. I think that if I get super meta about it, I think it really comes back to growing up. I, I think about the people that really helped me get to where I am and how much they helped me out and how much they shared with me. If that hadn't happened to me, I don't even know where I would be. Probably like doing commercial real estate in Boston or something like totally not up my alley. But because people did do that and they, they took a chance on me and they, they helped me out, I was able to have the life that I have. They showed me the life that I could have or whatever you want to call it. And I think that once you get to a certain point, not even in life or in business, but once you get to a certain point of self-actualization, if you want to call it that, you start to realize that there is this inherent feeling of, I do want to help other people get to where I am, right? Like if, if nothing else, at least I can help other people help them with some problem they're having. Cause I know what that's like. And I know how hard it is. If you don't have somebody who, who understands, I can help you out in that sense. And one of my favorite quotes is by Teddy Roosevelt. And he talks about how it's called, it's about manhood. And he talks about how one of the responsibilities of life is that there's a, there's a duty of life. You have to do something so that at the end of your life, you said, yeah, I, I did everything I could and I, I, left, I left this world better than I found it. Even if it's not, if I don't see the financial return immediately or even a year out, I know it's the right thing to do. I've met plenty of guys who don't have that philosophy and they make way more money and they're very happy and they're great. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that that's how I was brought up. That's what resonates with me. And that's, that's just what I do. So I've tried going for periods and been like, all right, no, I'm just going to, I'm going to build a business and keep to myself and not share the information. And I end up just, it just kind of sucks. It's just not that fun. I, I inevitably come back to this idea of sharing information, helping people out, and it makes everything better. When you started identifying those people in your life who could help you and who were able to share with you, how did you go about connecting with them and how did they find you? I think early in life, and when I say early in life, I mean, the, when I graduated college, I still felt like I was pretty naive and I would even say immature. I, I was sleeping on the floor of my brother's apartment for six months. I was landscaping and surfing. I didn't really have any plan, didn't really care about having a plan. 
And that's just kind of how, what I thought. I'd just gone to this really great school. My parents had helped, they had sacrificed everything to like go to school and didn't really hit me that I probably should be seeking out help and like all this resources that I just had for four years. I didn't really go after it. But luckily in high school, I had a swim coach that just, he proactively talked to me. You know, he came at, into my life and said, I'm going to help you out. The same in college, I had a professor that said, hey, I want you to do an independent study with me. I want to work with you one-on-one. I think once I graduated and I, I started you know, living in the non-college or structured world, I started to gravitate towards successful, you know, in my case, businessmen, where I would just, I'd be so interested and so curious and ask them so many questions about, hey, how did you get here? What have you done to do this? And I naturally just started helping them out. I didn't, even, I, I didn't even think about, hey, you should provide value before you ask for value. I didn't even think about that. I was always just trying to, to help them do stuff and solve problems for them. And then they, they started to reciprocate by introducing me to people and helping me out. So I think that it started with a genuine curiosity with people that were ahead of me in life and in business and just emailing them or going to events where I knew they would be there and researching them before I got to the event so that I could, you know, casually make up some conversation that they're like, oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. And just stuff like that, because I really just wanted to talk. I wanted five minutes of their time. And I didn't care if they, if they helped me or not. I just wanted to, just to talk to them. And I think that that's something that often gets missed is that when entrepreneurs are looking for a mentor or somebody to learn from or somebody who can help them out, they're not really seeking out people that they are genuinely interested in, in talking to. Right? There's people in San Francisco that they have done just really amazing, cool things, things that I'm, I'm so interested in. And I've never thought about asking them for anything other than, can I have 10 minutes of your time? Because I just have questions that these books can't answer. And I just want to hear about your experience. And that really excites me. And I think once you start asking those kind of questions, people come out of the woodworks and they start saying, oh, yeah, I can help you. And hey, you know, my buddy over here can help you, too. Let me introduce you to this person and this person. And that's when you start to get a lot of a lot of people rooting for you to, to be successful. That's interesting. So you went from coaching kind of relationships to real mentorship kind of relationships. Yeah, I think mentorship comes in a lot of forms, too. I think that the in-person mentorship for me is is powerful, but it's it's not as much as being able to sit in on podcasts like this. I think it's very powerful. I think that reading books can be very powerful. I think that just immersing yourself in, in new ways of thinking is often just as important as being able to talk to somebody who's 15, 20 years older than you are and ask them questions. I think there's benefits of both, but I do think that there's a lot of different styles of mentorship and all that. I know in my life, the older I get, the more the books start sounding the same and the more the conversations start becoming more important. But when I first started off, man, if I had read some of the books that people had told me to read, I would have bypassed a whole lot of stuff. So there's just a whole spectrum, you know, and you got to try to do it all. <laughs> I like the distinction that you're making, though, between what you get from an actual human interaction versus what you get from reading about something. Yeah. And I think that's so true. I think meeting people in person, I think at our live events and just at meetups and, and things like that, it's something very, very special when you can sit at a table with somebody and, and talk to them and hear about their experience, because inevitably there's obviously the human side of it, the human connection and the energy of it all. But people always, they talk about things differently or they mention a story or they, they have a detail that they left out of the book or of the, of the podcast or something that just really hits you. And it's, it's the right time for it to hit you because often 
we might read a book or have a conversation and we just weren't in the right mood and it didn't hit us the right way. But then we, we have a conversation two weeks later, it's the same conversation, but it's, it hits us over the head. And I think that when you're in person, the chances of having that, oh my gosh, moment are much higher. Now, I know a lot of people also get involved in mastermind groups in order to foster that kind of communication with other people who are at the same level, maybe a little bit higher along the way. Are you involved in a mastermind groups yourself? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think I think mastermind groups are, are incredible. And I've been a part of a, a lot of different ma- kinds of mastermind groups. I've been in big ones with a lot of just incredible, specifically more for in the digital marketing world, just huge business owners and incredible, incredibly smart people. And I've also been in groups of three or four people that we just get together. And, you know, there's a couple uh, groups in town in San Francisco where we'll all get together for a dinner and we're all in different industries. It's not marketers. And everyone will just say, hey, what's one thing that's working for your company right now? And we might have a customer service person there. We have someone who's flipping domains here. We have someone who works for Pinterest over here. And everyone's just sharing that kind of information. And then there's also the kind of one-on-one small group mastermind stuff, which can be very powerful as well. I think that what I've learned from being in those masterminds is that you really get what you put into it. And I think that it's very easy, very tempting, I should say, to pay a lot of money or put in a lot of time to be in a mastermind group and want to walk in and have people just pour all the secrets on you and say, oh, here's what, here's what no one's really telling you on the blog. So like, here's what Tim Ferriss really isn't saying in the book. Like, here's, here's the real deal. And it doesn't really happen that way. What happens though, is that you walk in and you have a group of people that are all on the same page about something. And you know, that's what ties them together. And that is a huge opportunity to be able to introduce yourself, ask them how you can help them out, listen to what they're doing and provide feedback and get all these people that are really, really just, yeah, on the same page as you and be able to provide the same level of information or, or above where you're at to help you just accelerate and, and keep that going. And I think that that's, I mean, I mean, that is the most important thing. I don't think there is anything else more important than that. I know you physically moved yourself from Maine to San Francisco, where there's a high concentration of people you can get get together with physically face-to-face. Do you feel that that physical face-to-face component is an important aspect of this? Yeah, I think it's a huge. And I think that the more, the further we get into the techn- technology world, the deeper that we get into social networks and notifications and you know everything is just digital at this point the more important it is to take time to meet with people in the face to face and not obviously not everyone lives in a city right and especially not in San Francisco and there's people all over the world in in blue cloud and in the greater online marketing world and often they're like man well you know there's nobody here who's who's like me or you know there's nobody here around me and i think that one there are people no matter where you are. I mean, you might have to go for, you might have to drive 30 or 50 miles to find them. And maybe it's only three people, but there are people and if it's worth seeking them out and just getting together for coffee. That's important. Another thing is I think that it's important to, to get out of your comfort zone and to get on a plane and go somewhere for an event or for a meetup or a conference or whatever it may be and put everything you have into it and say, this is an important part of business. This is part of the, this is part of the game. This is why certain people do really well is because they make these kind of moves. I I don't think that I've met anybody who has said that 
the in-person stuff isn't beneficial or it's not worth it or it's, you know, you can learn it all in a book. I don't think I've ever heard anybody ever say that. So what else do you do in terms of in-person stuff? I mean, they're the mastermind groups. You mentioned meetups. Yeah, so meetups, a lot of times I always... I should say back when I was doing the lawyer website stuff, I realized early on that I was going to all these meetups with other marketers or other like, you know, sales guys, I should say, salespeople. And I was just one of 30 people that were all, that all had the same problems. And then I thought to myself, it would be a really different conversation if I was the only lawyer website guy in the room and everybody else was either lawyers or I don't mean, whatever. Because then everybody would be interested in me for for whatever reason. They, they would think that this was really like, oh, you know, you've talked to the lawyer website guy over there. And that principle, that was, was a big shift. And so what I started to do when I was in Maine is I would go to these, the most boring lawyer events. I mean, you're talking... Like, like lawyers have to take mandatory education stuff every year to keep their bar license. And I would just go and you could rent a booth for like 50 bucks for the day. I mean, it was ridiculous. I would pull up a, a piece of, you know, a regular table. I would put an iMac on the table and I would just show websites of lawyer, like lawyers. And I got more people to come and talk to me and say, oh, hey, uh, you know, I really... I'm really interested in what this is interesting. Like you're the only guy here who, who you're the only person I've ever met who would come here and talk about websites. Like I want to talk to you more. The reason I'm saying this story is because now I used to go to a lot of meetups with developers, with with app entrepreneurs, people interested in keywords and getting traffic for their apps, which, you know, from a sales perspective, that's, that's probably a good move. But what I really like to do is go into a room where I'm the only app guy. I go to a room with people who, who are major media buyers on Facebook and they don't know anybody who has built a thousand, fifteen hundred apps. And so all of a sudden they really want to talk to me. They got a lot of questions for me. Or maybe I'll go to a big SEO event, which is search engine optimization. And nobody there has built an app before, but they're all pretty interested. They're all like, oh, yeah, I've got an idea for an app or oh, I want to be interested in this. And so I find that about once a month, I'll go to an event that has absolutely nothing to do with apps but I know that the people there will be interested in apps, right? It could be real estate. It can be small business owners. It could be anything. And sometimes it kind of sucks and, you know, no one's interesting. But I would say 60% of the time I walk out of there, not even with leads or clients. It's just awesome connections. People that are, if they ever want anything for apps, like they know who to talk to. That's a really effective way to, to do the meetup thing, in my opinion, because you automatically have this awesome trump card for, hey, this is what you can, what we can talk about and everyone's really interested. So yeah, I started doing that a couple of years ago and it's been great. I love doing it. That's fascinating. And it sounds like part of that is is really understanding the demographic of the type of people you would want to target and who might be interested in talking with you about the type of business that you have. Yeah, exactly. I think that a lot of it is understanding the questions that the general population is asking. And I think it's also, I've always found immense value in knowing people at the top of a lot of different industries that you could call with a question if, if you needed to. And so being able to be the app guy for other people inherently means that I now have someone who is the top of the commercial real estate industry in downtown San Francisco or someone who is, you know, a, a shipping giant in, for Chinese shipping or whatever, you know, like random stuff. But you just never know when it's when you're going to want to be able to call somebody and say, hey, I just got a quick question for you. Or, hey, can I introduce you to somebody? Like, you just never know. And 
that's often when the magic really happens. Of course, that's the part of your business also that revolves around being a service in terms of providing the service of building apps for people, right? Yeah, and we don't really do a whole lot in terms of, like if someone wanted to build an app, I could put them in touch with a lot of developers. I could definitely help them with their marketing strategy, but we won't take a scope of work, turn it into an app, manage it, publish it for you. I tried that, was not, not my thing. So often I, we have a couple teams that I'll, I'm happy to say, hey, these, these are you should talk to. Here's the high budget person. Here's the medium. Here's the low. That takes care of most of the, the clients. I think on the service side, what we do offer is strategic consulting. Like, hey, we've got all this funding. We don't really know what to do. How do we get downloads? And I'm happy to get on a few phone calls or I've gone to plenty of startups downtown here and just sat in a conference room for an hour and said, they just fire questions at me for an hour and I help them out that way. So there's a little bit of a service component to that. I like to call it biz dev, but at the end of the day, yeah, it's, yeah I mean, it pretty much is service. So just getting down to the nitty gritty, what, what is the revenue model for your business these days when you look at it overall? The revenue model is mostly through, I would say, training courses, digital products like the templates themselves. So, you know, anywhere from 10 to 15 app templates that come with the training products and being able to train people how to use them, show them how to use it all, create a community through that. We do live events, which are big events where 80 to 100 people come and we do presentations and it's great. Next year, we're going to, we're really dialing in on the, developer, right? So Blue Cloud has typically been, hey, Joe, off the street, you want to build an app, I can show you how to make an app. And then if you all the way from I got an app idea all the way to wow, making money with apps, right? That was the traditional customer avatar. And now it's more I've built an app, but I'm having a hard time getting downloads. What do I do? Because of marketplaces like Udemy and Coursera and all these app training coding programs, I should say. I mean, there are millions of courses sold. I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of developers out there and it's a big enough market now where I can finally focus on the actual marketing. It's not, here's how you vet your app idea. Here's how you get a developer. All of that is still viable, but our business model is going to focus much more on the developers themselves. And once you do that, you not only get in the training, but that's when you can get into software, you can get into tools and solutions that are much more marketing focused, similar to what happened in the internet marketing world in you know, about 2007, when people started to say, hey, you know, we can just focus on marketing. It's not just about, oh, you gotta build a website first, and here's how you go set up hosting on HostGator. It was actually like, all right, now you got a website up, let's teach you how to get people to it. Same transition. That's what we're we're going to do next year. That's interesting. So the dynamic has shifted a bit from the average guy on the street who just wants to make something to now that I've made something, how do I actually make it into a success? Yeah, I think the dynamic has shifted, at least for me and for, for the Blue Cloud and business model, because there's a huge market out there for get an app in the app store. I mean, there's so many app builders out there. There's a lot of people that are just much better, honestly, at working with people to say, you're at ground zero, let's get you in the app store. And I am much more interested and I'm much better at helping people. You already have a product. All right, let's get you some downloads on this product. And if I can focus on just that, we'll have way more success stories, which at the end of the day, that's really the metric that we measure success for is how many people got the results that they wanted. And every, every quarter we, we measure, we ask people, have you reached the number that you want? And that's how we, we make sure that we're still doing, doing a good job. What are your favorite success stories from this? Oh, man. You know, it, there's a bunch of success stories and I won't take credit for like, oh, well, because they took Blue Cloud, like this, the, this is what happened. I will say, though, that 
anytime that I hear about somebody quitting their job, specifically a job that they didn't like, those are always the best. And there was one guy who's over in Bangladesh, this guy Tasnim, and we did a blog post about him. He didn't have a job. He didn't really know what he was doing. He was just like, man, what do I do? He's born and raised, never left the country. And he heard about this app thing. And over the course of a year and a half, two years, he made six figures, which is a like, massive sum of money over there. And now he's, he's, he's living, he's doing it. I mean, he's completely living his dream. There's another guy recently, Anthony Hammond, who about a year ago, he had never even, didn't even have an app, bought one of our source code packages and we had a consulting call. And now he, he left his job and he's traveling across Australia with his sons and he's you know having, having the time of his life. So those are my favorite success stories. Those are obviously the biggest success stories. I think there's also a lot of kind of micro successes, which I think are just as important where you got an app in the store and you're retired and you've never done anything technical in your life. Those are pretty awesome as well. Yeah, I, I think it's just, there's so many. It's great. I love it. I can see the way that you light up when you talk about those things. It sounds like that, that provides a lot of motivation for you. And I'm curious because you're keeping a lot of plates spinning at the same time. How do you take care of yourself? How do you, how do you keep yourself grounded while you're doing all of this? The biggest thing is, I guess you can call it like self-auditing or whatever, where I would say once a week, I'll go through everything. I ask myself very point blank, is this still something that A, is it working? And B, am I still fired up about this? And if three weeks in a row, I'm not either of those two things, then I'll, I'll, I'll just be like, all right, this is done. And so it goes. And so I think that's the first piece is being able to, to know when to cut so that I can go a little bit overdrive for a month knowing that it may wind down the month after that if it's not working because if it is working great you know i think the second piece is i'm completely obsessed with systems and automation and anything i do now it's all screencasted i turn it all into procedures i i'm very diligent about trying to make absolutely everything a step-by-step here's what to do, document or whatever you want to call it. And it's taken a while, but I think after about six months of this, it's amazing how smoothly, I shouldn't say smoothly, but how consistently businesses can run if there are just these procedures in place. And that, granted, this took me three years to realize, but now it's, it's kind of changed everything. And I think third for me is that it's just fun. Like I'm not trying to buy the building, right? I'm not trying to make $200 million here or anything like that. I'm obviously trying to be successful in every way I can, but I, I always say that a rich life to me is health, wealth, happiness, and contribution. And all four of those things are always, always on my mind in equal amounts. And so there may be a lot of things going on. If my energy is not into it, it might be on pause for, for two weeks, or it might be on pause indefinitely so that I can go visit my family or, or whatever it may be. So so I guess you can call that prioritization, but just being constantly making sure that you have your hand on the controls so that if it does get out of whack or it gets out of line and it's, it's pulling you down more than it's, you can throw the towel and say, all right, that project's done. Let's focus on this so that it stays pretty fun. It takes a mature mind to be able to walk away from something. I think, yeah, you're definitely right. I, and I wouldn't say I'm, I've like figured it out by any, any stretch of the imagination, but I do think that at some point I needed to just do it right? I needed to just like shut stuff down that it could have been huge or it could have been working or it could have been something else. But 
if you don't have some sort of objective goal that you write when you are in a, a very clear headed moment, a lot of people have different ways to do that, like a vision board or a goal chart or a mission statement or whatever you want to call it. But you need to have something where you can look at when you are not feeling good, where you're not motivated and say, am I still being true to this? And how can I measure this? That has nothing to do with how I feel right now. And that's very difficult to do when you're an entrepreneur, solo entrepreneur, or you got a small team or whatever it may be. But I think finding ways to objectively make those decisions, which in my case is the systems. That's what the procedures do is they, they run without, like without my triple espresso in the morning, or if I don't drink, it, it doesn't matter. They, they still, they still move without me. That's a huge weight off my shoulders. That's very cool. You talk about putting together the procedures for other people to follow. I'm curious, how do you structure that technically? What tools do you use to make that happen? It's honestly a lot more boring than it sounds. So what I do is I'll go through the procedure once and I'll make sure that I, I can do it and that there's a, there's a clear step-by-step. -step. Then I will go back to the beginning. I'll open QuickTime and I'll do a screencast and I will go through it again and I'll just screencast the whole thing, but I'll talk out loud and say, okay, this is me clicking on this button. Now I'm going to this folder and, you know, like the whole thing. And I talk as slow as I can because otherwise I end up going way too fast for anybody to, to understand. So I go, as, that's what I learned, it's go really slow. You take that video and then I upload it to either Dropbox. We have a Vimeo business account, so I upload it to Vimeo where it just gets stored into a folder for the particular project or business case that you're using it for. And then I send that video to the person who will actually be doing the, the task. Could be an assistant, project manager, whatever. I ask them to go through that and I ask them to repeat those results. They come back inevitably with a handful of questions. We answer the questions, they do it again. And then we just use Google Docs and they turn that into a, a written form of the procedure where step one, they write it out, they take a screenshot. Step two, just so that there is a second version of that process because some people just learn better off the Google Docs. Some people learn better from the screencasts. And it also verifies that the person that is doing it really knows what they're talking about. So, I mean, you can do it pretty much for free with QuickTime, Dropbox, free account, and Google Docs. And, you know, you'll be, you'll be good to go. One of the things I love about that is that you're making sure that you're not the only person whose perspective is being recorded about how this task should be done. You're getting this other person to record their impression about how it should be done as well. Yeah. And the kicker is that they always do a better job than I do. Like they, they always find all these details and things that I, I overlook. And so it's, it's also a check on my own. I always forget things that they see. And you said you use Google Docs for communicating. Is, is that how you manage most of your communications with your teams? We use Google Docs for a lot of file and form management. Slack is really good for communication for the kind of, you know, back and forth and just keeping things together. Obviously, Skype works really well, but I would say Slack is probably the primary communication channel at this point. Google Docs is more about just if we create a document or if we create a spreadsheet or anything like that, that's, that's where we put it there. So I'm sure that there are folks in my audience who are going to be interested in finding out about you and especially these new trainings that you're putting together. How can people find you online? Yeah, so website, bluecloudsolutions.com. Just go there. You can, you can check it out. Plenty of free resources on that site. I'm on Twitter, fair amount, at Carter Thomas on Twitter. On Facebook, you can, we've got Blue Cloud Solutions, or you can go to Facebook forward slash Carter G. Thomas, and I'll be there. But I would say Twitter, the website's probably the, the best way to, to get in touch. Cool. And I will link out some of those resources that you mentioned in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. This has been great. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? 
Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>